Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 12th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So we find ourselves well in the past today. We're yeah. all the way back in 1939, the 12th Academy Awards, a huge year for cinema. Indeed. And a pretty consequential year for the world. Yeah, there were some things going on, though in America, we were still trying to pretend that was not the case. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, yeah, should we just get into it? Get into our historical overview? We have a lot to cover this year. Yeah, well, that will become apparent as we start listing the films that were nominated, but we've we've bitten off quite a bit today. Yes. So where were we? What's going on? It's 1939. It's 1939, the year that World War II officially begins, but only in Europe. In America, we were like, they could probably handle that on their own. Uh, Germany invades Poland. It's on, basically. Yeah. And in the United States, it's also the beginning of the Manhattan Project. It is also the last year of the Spanish Civil War. So there's a ton going on in Europe. Spain had just been through this whole bloody civil war, and it, it sort of contributes to them not not chomping at the bit to join World War II. Yeah, they were pretty exhausted, I, I presume, at that point in time sort of related to what's happening in Europe, but not quite in the same place in the world. Gandhi is active. He's protesting against British imperialism. He starts a fast mm -hmm. that year, but he also writes to Hitler and asks him to not start a war. He says, hey, maybe not. Hey, Hitler, it's probably a bad idea. huh?" So things are happening. Things are about to get things very real. We're still sort of in the Great Depression, like where it because much so. it's World War II that ends up turning the tide for us. So over at home, I think we're sort of still dealing with the things aren't great over here, which contributes to people not being super ready to jump into a global conflict. Yes, especially, you know, all the way across the ocean, which at the time, very far away. Felt less very far, far away. Less far in our modern times, but at the time, very Correct. far away. In fun news. Yeah, we got one fun thing for you. Batman first appears. You know our pal hey. Batman. He's around. Our good pal Batman. He makes his first appearance in Detective Comics number 27. Gotta love the creativity of the early comic book names. Yes, that has uh, also reverberated through time. We can't seem to get away from Batman. Mm -hmm. Batman begins and then he just wouldn't end. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. It's more Batman time soon. More Batmans all the time, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's an overpopulation problem with the Batmans, yeah. I think. All right. Do we want to just so, dive then into our nominees? Let's do our traditional run through of what the nominees for Best Picture are, who made them, and what they were nominated for and won at the Academy Awards. So this is early enough that we have 10 nominees this year. We're not doing mm -hmm. our normal five. So our first nominee alphabetically is Dark Victory, which is a melodrama about a free-spirited socialite who develops a terminal brain tumor. It stars Betty Davis, George Brent, Humphrey Bogart, and Ronald Reagan. It's directed mm -hmm. by Edmund Goulding, written by Casey Robinson. It was nominated for three, and it won zero. Ah, bummer. Mm -hmm. 
The next, alphabetically, is Gone with the Wind. You may have heard of it. A sweeping epic about Scarlett O'Hara, a member of the landed slave-owning gentry, and her attempts to maintain her pre-war lifestyle during and after the Civil War. It stars Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, Hattie McDaniel, Olivia de Havilland, and Thomas Mitchell. Directed by Victor Fleming, written by Sidney Howard. It was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, and it won eight of them. Best Picture, Best Director for Victor Fleming, Best Actress for Vivian Lee, Best Supporting Actress for Hattie McDaniel, Best Screenplay for Sidney Howard, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Color, and Best Film Editing. Next is Goodbye, Mr. Chips, a drama about the life of an English school teacher during the late 19th and early 20th century. It stars Robert Donat and Greer Garson. It's directed by Sam Wood, written by R.C. Sheriff, Claudine West, and Eric Mashwitz. Is nominated for seven, and it won one Best Actor for Robert Donat. Next, we have Love Affair, a romance about a couple who have a whirlwind courtship on a transatlantic cruise, starring Charles Boyer, Irene Dunn, directed by Leo McCary, and written by Delmer Daves and Donald Ogden Stewart. Nominated for six Academy Awards, and it won zero. Next up is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, a dramedy about an idealistic young man who is appointed to a vacant Senate seat by a political machine that hopes to take advantage of his naivete. It stars Jimmy Stewart, Gene Arthur, and Thomas Mitchell, directed by Frank Capra, written by Sidney Buckman, and it was nominated for 11 and won one Best Writing Original Story. Next is Nanachka a romantic comedy. We have a little bit of a different description for you here because this was the original three-sentence pitch by Melchior Langle that got this movie picked up. Mm -hmm. He described it as, Russian girl saturated with Bolshevist ideals goes to fearful, capitalistic, monopolistic Paris. She meets romance and has an uproarious good time. Capitalism not so bad after all? Thanks, Melchior, for that. (laughs) Thanks, Melchior. It stars Greta Garbo in her first comedy and Melvin Douglas. Directed by Ernst Lubitsch, written by Melchior Langle, Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and Walter Reich. Nominated for four Academy Awards and it won zero. Next up, we have Of Mice and Men, which is an adaptation of the John Steinbeck novella about two migrant laborers in California during the Great Depression who aspire to own their own piece of land. It stars Burgess Meredith, Lon Chaney Jr., and Betty Field. It was directed by Lewis Milestone, written by Eugene Solo. It was nominated for four and it won zero. Next, we have Stagecoach, a Western about a group of people who travel from the Arizona Territory to New Mexico while under the threat of an Apache attack. It stars John Wayne, Thomas Mitchell, and Claire Trevor. Directed by John Ford, written by Dudley Nichols. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards and won two Best Supporting Actor for Thomas Mitchell and Best Music Scoring. Next is Wizard of Oz, a musical adaptation of L. Frank Baum's children's fantasy about a young girl who is thrown by a twister into the magical land of Oz and has to go on a grand adventure to find her way home. It stars Judy Garland, Margaret Hamilton, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Britt Lahr. It's directed by Victor Fleming, written by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe, nominated for six and won three. Best Music Original Score, Best Music Original Song, and a special juvenile award was given to Judy Garland, not just for this film, but it counts towards For her performances that year. Yes. And finally, we have Wuthering Heights, an adaptation of Emily Bronte's novel set in the English Moors that focuses on the tempestuous romance between Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff. Starring Laurence Olivier, Merle Oberon, and David Niven, directed by William Wyler, Written by Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht. 
It was nominated for eight and won one for Best Cinematography, Black and White. Woof. That's a lot of movies. Ooh, what a list. <laughs> it sure is. So that's already plenty of movies, but we should also run you through the highest grossing movies of the year to give you a sense of what else was going on at the theater. Mm-hmm. So the highest grossing movie of that year is Gone with the Wind. It is also the highest grossing movie of all time, adjusted for inflation. Yes, very famously. The movie's done well for itself. Number two that year was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Three was Jesse James. Four, Babes in Arms. And five, The Wizard of Oz. So we already have three of our 10 nominees there. And we should say Goodbye, Mr. Chips, another of our nominees, was also number seven mm-hmm. on the box office list. So, yeah, 10 nominees. We thought pretty long and hard about how we wanted to approach these years where there's more than our sort of traditional five. And we decided we wanted to have a little fun with it. We didn't just want to sit and run through 10 nominees. So we've developed a bracket system. We're gamifying Oh, I love a bracket system. Get ready for the tournament of 1939. So, yep. How is this going to work? How how did we set up this bracket and what are we going to do, Maddie? Yes. So in order to have a bracket, anyone who watches March Madness or anything of the like will know that you need seeds. So we had to figure out some sort of ranking system for all of the movies to figure out which ones would face off against each other. And since we're already doing the business of picking them, we did not want to be involved in ranking them. It felt like there needed to be some sort of quantifiable element to that if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. So we have used though I'm sure some people will have a problem with this, we have used Rotten Tomatoes to come up with our seeds. So the critics' rating of each of the films is what we're using. But in the case of ties, and in this year we actually had two ties, we have used the number of reviews on the site to break that tie. So whichever has more reviews gets the higher seed. Yes. So then number one faces number 10, number two faces number nine, etc. Right. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through each face-off and we're going to pick a winner and a loser. And if we agree on who wins and who loses, we're going to talk about the loser this episode. I guess we haven't mentioned though, this, the plan is for this to be a two-parter, so that's important too. Yeah, this is episode one, The Losers. Yes. <laughs> Stay tuned for next episode where we will discuss the winners. But much like in our regular episodes where we don't tell each other beforehand if we would have been mad about individual pictures winning, we have not told each other which picture we think should win the matchup. So there is the potential that we're going to disagree and we have decided that we have to come to some kind of conclusion. Somebody has to win. So it's either going to be a discussion of the losers or that happening within the debate about which picture should go forward. But, you know, we're going to try it and see how it goes. If anyone listening to this is like, oh, you should try doing something like this. I think we're open to also hearing suggestions about how to improve our bracket system because it, yeah. it is. And if this yeah. whole thing crashes and burns, we'll come back with a different strategy yeah. for the next year. Where it'll, we be, have it'll be, you know, monopoly based. I don't know. Monopoly based. Let's get dice involved in this somehow. <laughs> All right, so we should tell you what the face-offs are yes. right now. Number one is Stagecoach versus number 10, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Our next matchup is the number two seed of Mice and Men versus number nine's Love Affair. Our next matchup is number three, The Wizard of Oz versus number eight, Dark Victory. Then we have number four, Nanachka versus number seven, Gone with the Wind. And finally... Number five, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington against number six, Wuthering Heights. So we will do our thing, decide which is the loser and discuss the loser, and then see if we have any fights. Fights to the death. Yay. Yay. Before we do that, though, I guess we should say, because people will be wanting to know, what actually won this year? 
So as we mentioned, Gone with the Wind won. Not only did it win Best Picture, it won a lot of awards. Yeah, you might have noticed that most of these were nominated for a few and won none. Yes. That's because there was a particular film snapping up a lot of awards this year. So that might show you that at the time, the the consensus was fairly favorable Mm -hmm. towards Gone with the Wind. It was hugely popular with the public and also mostly well-received by the critics, though I think we will get into some of that when we actually discuss uh, it. Hugely popular with some of the public, like a particular demographic of the public and some other demographic could it be? We're maybe less excited about it, but you know. Correct. But yeah, I mean, at the time, unless you were a particular subset of people, I'll say, it was probably a fairly uncontroversial win. It was hugely popular. It was making a ton of money at the box office and it was nominated for a million Academy Awards. So I don't think people were hugely shocked. But I will say the historical consensus now, not quite as unified, but I think we can probably leave that discussion to our full discussion of the film whenever we get to it, whether it be in this episode of The Losers, or next episode of The Winners. Yes, yes, yes. So let us go through our brackets and make our decisions and see if we are about to meet with controversy. Uh-huh. So first pairing, Stagecoach and Goodbye Mr. Chips. Which, are we saying which we think is the winner or which we think is the loser? Let's say which we think is the winner because I'm going to get confused if we're declaring the loser. All right, so which do you prefer between Stagecoach? Oh, I guess not prefer. The winner, whatever yes. that means to you. Which do I think is more deserving of a best picture win? We're still coming up with what we think that means. Yes. But yes. I'm going to go with Stagecoach. Maddie? Me too. And I was shocked by my own decision having not seen it before not we did It's fully this. uncontroversial, but I guess we'll talk about that next episode in our winner. So yes. goodbye, Mr. Chips gets selected for the losers. Yeah. All right. Our next face-off mm-hmm. of Mice and Men and Love Affair. I guess I'll go first. Sure. We'll switch off. My winner of these two is of Mice and Men. I agree with that. My winner is also of Mice and Men. All right. Two for two. Two for two. (laughs) Let's see if we can keep this rolling. Our third face-off, The Wizard of Oz and Dark Victory. Wizard of Oz for the win. Same here. I mean, that's uncontroversial, I think. I I agree. That's maybe the least controversial of our choices. But we don't know. Maybe Dark Victory stands are out there, enraged. Honestly, I hope so. If you're a dark victory, Stan, write to us. You're the type of person I want to know. Our fourth face-off, Nanachka versus Gone with the Wind. For me, the winner is Nanachka. I told you before we recorded this, I have a lot of of feelings about this. I'm going with Gone with the Wind. So we are going to have to get into a debate. Yeah. And then fifth, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Wuthering Heights. Mr. Smith goes to Washington for the win. Yeah, same. Okay. Okay. Do we do our debate first or should we discuss the first three? I think given Gone with the Wind is the best picture winner, I think we should actually discuss that last. Yeah. Okay. Let's save it. So let's discuss the losers. Yes. To begin with. First, we have Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So Goodbye, Mr. Chips, as we said, is the story of the life of the school teacher in England from the end of the 19th century through the beginning of the 20th century. I found it very interesting. A lot of the summaries on the internet refer to him as being cold-hearted until he meets his wife. I found him to just be sort of anxious and awkward, but, you know, we can get into that. And so anyway, he's teaching the students. They're rowdy. It's like all boys' schools, so of course they're rowdy. Mm -hmm. 
He's not doing super well as a teacher. He ends up going on this trip with one of his colleagues to the Swiss Alps. Yeah, there's this German teacher who's very personable and sees that Mr. Chips is not getting along with anyone really. And he sort of is just like, I'm going on vacation and you're coming with me. (laughs) He drags him along on this great trip to the Alps where he meets a woman. A woman. Yes. He meets a woman who takes a liking to him and he to her and they fall in love and They get married and then they come back and he's much more confident now that he's met this woman. And unfairly, unfortunately, she dies in childbirth. But by that time, he's figured out how to like hang with the kid. Well, and she's really helped him. Yes, it's true. He always aspired to be headmaster and it seems like it's not going to happen. But then World War One breaks out and everyone has to leave and he has to steer the school through these difficult times. And then by the end of his life, he's an institution at this school and, and very beloved. And then he dies at the end, I think, right? It's his whole life, or is he asleep? Well, at the very least, you get the sense that his life is complete now, and then he, like, falls asleep in front of the fire, slash potentially dies. Yes. So, yeah, I feel like you've sold it. Thank you. So the thing for me with Goodbye, Mr. Chips is... It feels like a biopic that has all of the flaws of a biopic. I was about to call it a biopic, and then I was like, but it's not a biopic. It's fictional. Again, like our complaint with biopics that they're just these episodic things, and it's like, okay, you're telling this whole story of a life, but we're not really getting to delve into anything. And because we're ticking through so many just events, you don't get the resonance of the emotions necessarily. But it's fictional, so like they didn't have to do it this way. I know. I mean, I didn't hate it. I thought that Robert Jeanette was charming. I ended up liking his wife. It's nice to see the kids be affected by him. I just felt fine about it. I was intrigued by watching this, having so recently watched Dead Poet Society. Yes. I was thinking about that a lot because it is this boarding school of all boys. And there's this interesting scene where Mr. Chips is about to get fired by this new headmaster who doesn't know anything about him. And he starts talking about how he doesn't want this school to just turn out a bunch of snobs who are all the same type of person. Like he wants them all to be free thinkers. There is a lot of interesting Dead Poet Society resonance for me. Yes. Also, I will say, I kind of agree with him about the new pronunciation of Latin. (laughs) Like he's a Latin teacher. And during the course of his career, There's this change to wanting to teach Latin in the way that we have learned that it was actually pronounced at the time with hard C's in a way that is not natural for people, because I think people are more used to pronouncing Latin like it's a modern romance language. So he's talking about how, like, why would I teach them to pronounce it that way when they're not even going to use it that way? (laughs) It's sort of like... You know what, Mr. Chips, I think you're right. I don't know if it was that same scene. It might have been, but I thought it was funny. There was a part two where the headmaster complained that he insisted on clinging to the past. And I was like, yeah, dude, he's a Latin teacher. He's a Latin teacher. (laughs) Of course he clings to the past. It's a dead language. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But this movie is fine. I I will say, looking at this year, always been a little perplexed about Robert Donat's win. And I'm still not really happy with it, given some of the other lead male performances we have this year. But I didn't think he was bad, though. No, it's it's like we always talk about. It's not a case where the winner's necessarily bad. I just think some of the other performances were still better. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton to say about Goodbye, Mr. I don't Chips, either. if I'm being honest. It was it was perfectly pleasant. Yeah. Well, that's Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Mm-hmm. Shall we move along to Love Affair? Yeah, let's move along to Love Affair, which is a an interesting movie remade many years later into An Affair to Remember, which is sort of the more famous version. Which then, 
as you mentioned to me earlier, is referenced very heavily in the later film Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) So the echoes of this film throughout history. There are many generations who are familiar with the story via their own either version or adaptation in some ways. I think there actually might be another. Yeah, there's one with Warren Beatty in the early 90s too. But that one nobody talks about. Well, we'd rather all talk about Sleepless in Seattle, which just references the character. Or an affair to remember. Or I guess Love Affair. (laughs) Let's talk about Love Affair. So this is a movie where Charles Boyer plays this famous French playboy who who is about to settle down. And it's in all the papers that he's engaged to a woman. Yeah. He's a kind of a socialite, but mostly seems to get by on hanging out with rich people more than being a rich person. And then we have this normal kind of lady that he meets on this cruise yeah, a transatlantic voyage. A transatlantic voyage to New York. And she also has a man. The two of them meet each other on the ship and have this instant connection. But both of them know that the other one is with someone else. And he's seemingly still hitting on her. And she's like, that's not yes. going to happen, basically. But she does like him enough to keep hanging out with him. They're trapped on the boat for a couple of weeks. So they're in this bubble and realize by the end of it that they're in love with each other, but they have to get back to their real lives. So what are they going to do about this? Neither of them has the money to support Mm -hmm. them, really. They make this agreement. They're both going to go their separate ways, try to get their lives in order. And then in six months, they're going to meet on the top of the Empire State Building and then lead their lives together. (laughs) And, And so they both go off. He tries to focus on his art and becomes a fairly successful artist. And then she goes off and she becomes a singer. And then it's the day of their meeting. She's headed to the Empire State Building. She's crossing the street (laughs) to get to the Empire State Building. And she gets hit by a car. Tragic and paralyzed. And so he's there waiting at the top of the Empire State Building. She never shows. He thinks he's been abandoned. She, meanwhile, is in the hospital recovering. And they tell her that they won't know if she's going to walk again for another six months. And she somehow decides that means she doesn't want to tell him about it until she knows either way. And so... Another six months go by and he is about to leave New York. So he comes by her house right before he's going to go. And they have this sort of very subtle argument where they're not really talking about what they're talking about. And he's trying to figure out why she didn't show up. And she's not really willing to tell him. And then he comes to a realization that someone had come in and bought a painting he had done of her. And that person had been in a wheelchair and he puts it all together that she's the one who was in the wheelchair everything's fine. And he's just sort of like, oh, I get why you didn't tell me. And now we can be together. (laughs) That is the end. What did you think of Love Affair? I mean, I thought it was fine. And we're going to talk throughout both these episodes of how things have aged, right? So like very early on when they're on the boat, they're talking about his history as a ladies' man. And she's like, oh, so you've been with many women. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, but you didn't respect them, right? And he's like, no. And you're like, red flag and you're like that seems worse (laughs) but she loves it she's like well you know these are women he doesn't care about but i'm like yikes right and then of course the other major pivot point is her being like i can't tell him i was in an accident and i'm paralyzed instead i'm going to let him believe i don't love him anymore and i think it's supposed to be tragic romantic and even within the movie when the doctor finds out that that's the case he goes sensible i'm obsessed with this moment i'm obsessed with this moment so so that okay The guy that she was with before she falls in love on the boat 
is maybe the best dude ever. Ken is a mensch. He's such a mensch. So she has decided to leave him for reasons yes. unknown to him, which, you know, fair enough. Fair play to you. And so she leaves town. She goes on her life. She gets a career. She's singing in nightclubs or whatever. And then she comes back to town and he finds out she's back in town and he immediately is like, I have to go see her. And I'm thinking in my head it's because he wants to go yell yeah. at her or something. But no, he just really likes her. And he's like, I got to see her. I haven't seen her in months. And so then when she gets paralyzed, he just takes over as her best friend slash yeah. caregiver slash he just is taking her places and making sure she's fine. So he's the one there at the hospital when she has decided she doesn't want to tell the man that she's in love with that she is in a wheelchair. And so he's telling the doctor that they're not going to tell the guy she's supposed to marry. And the doctor is like, yes, sensible. Sensible. Nice girl. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, that's horrifying. <laughs> Why has she decided not to tell him? I don't understand yeah, at all. I, I can't process how, in her mind, it is better for the love of her life, the person who loves her, yep. To think that she yeah. doesn't love him back, how that's better than him finding out she can't walk anymore. Yeah, it's super unclear. I guess the implication is that she doesn't want to be like a burden yeah. on him that he would have to take care of. Again, I don't know. Maybe people really feel differently. Psychologically, for me, that level of rejection is so much worse. Oh, obviously. It's so cruel. I'm sure that she thinks that she's sparing him, but it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> Like, it's obviously way worse for him to think that she doesn't love him. And then at the end, he's not as angry as I would be in that situation. He forgives her immediately. And I would just I would be so yeah. angry at that person. But I mean, I guess it must be that he's coming from a place where he is like sensible. Nice girl. Yeah. He's more on the doctor's sensible side. Instead of us. What I read about this movie is the fact that she got hit by a car and paralyzed is coming out of the Hayes Code. That because she was a quote unquote kept woman, that's like her relationship with Ken, she needed to be punished before she could have this great love. Yeah. Okay. That's fucked up, Hayes yeah. Code. <laughs> but I don't really understand. Like, without that, there's no movie. What would the movie have been if she wasn't paralyzed? If it would have been about them actually being in a relationship and trying to work through real but life. that's a totally different movie. The entire movie is they're supposed to meet. She can't meet for some reason. And then it derails their whole life. So I guess if she couldn't meet for some Maybe other reason. she could have gotten hit by the car and gotten amnesia. I love that because it makes her blameless that she doesn't show right. up. Yeah. That's the cool movie idea. What I found interesting about it was, obviously, I already knew the broad strokes of the story. I still found that the final scene worked mm -hmm. emotionally. I think that it, it plays because the way that they structure it is he's there trying to confront her, but he doesn't really lay anything out there. There's an interesting undercurrent to the scene because he's trying to say... Why did you not show up? And she's trying to say, I can't really tell you. Well, they're also playing this games where he's pretending that he didn't show up. Yeah, it's great. And then they get you right up to the edge where he's about to walk out the door. This is the part that I feel like is the, is the success of the film. They've had their conversation. They haven't really come to any resolution. And so he's about to leave and you're thinking, oh, no, it's all a miscommunication. And so then he has the realization and goes and looks at the painting and then they have their reconciliation. And so even as someone who was like, I don't buy the premise of it, I did still feel like the resolution was achieved. Yeah. But generally, you know, it's a romance. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to a fascinating one. 
Let's talk about Dark Victory. So Dark Victory, as we mentioned, is a melodrama about a socialite who has a brain tumor. Basically what happens in the movie is it starts off with Betty Davis and she's having headaches and vision problems, but she doesn't want to go to the doctor. And she ends up getting thrown by a horse and then the doctor comes and he's like, you need to see a specialist. And they harangue her into going to see the specialist. She's having pretty severe neurological issues. She can't feel properly with one of her hands and she's sensitive to light. So she ends up having a surgery and it turns out that she has some kind, I don't know if they removed part of it or exactly what happened in the surgery. I think they removed the tumor that she has. This is the best. This is like such a movie thing to do and not at all real. So they remove the tumor from her brain and it all goes well, swimmingly. Perfect 1939 brain surgery. But then they test the sample that they got from her brain and the results come back positively that this is what's going to happen. It's going to come back. There will be a recurrence of whatever she has grown. It's going to take about 10 months, probably. She's going to be absolutely fine, like nothing is wrong with her the whole time until she starts to have a dimming of vision, then goes fully blind within a short period of time. Then three to four hours later, she will die. (laughs) And this is the diagnosis. It's that specific. The doctor decides not to tell her that this is going to happen. I mean, wowza. We need a patient's bill of rights ASAP, people. And and he also falls in love with her and she with him. She eventually finds out that this is her prognosis. Well, at first he tells her best friend, who's also keeping the secret from her. And then she finds her file as they're Mm -hmm. about to get married and sees that he has sent off all of her samples to doctors around the world who have all written back. Prognosis Prognosis negative. negative. (laughs) So when she first finds out, of course, she's she's distraught. She goes on a bender. She's living destructively. But then she has an epiphany that, no, this isn't what I want to be doing. She ends up marrying the doctor. They move to Vermont and are living this sort of idyllic country lifestyle until it happens. Her eye starts to dim. Yes. But then luckily, right as this happens, the doctor gets a letter that his findings have been accepted by this medical yeah. panel and he needs to go to New York to present them tomorrow. And so he's all excited and she's like, this is a great opportunity for me to send him away and then he won't have to know that I'm about to die. So there's this scene where she's like basically blind, but she's helping him pack his right. suitcase. And so she sends him away and then she tells her maid, like, I'm going up to take yes. a nap. <laughs> She she says goodbye to her dogs and she goes upstairs and she lays down on her bed and then, you know, very dramatically dies with her eyes open. And that's Dark Victory. Tell me what you thought of Dark Victory. I have a lot to say about Dark Victory. I was fascinated. There's just something very weird about the structure of this film because there's this very severe difference between the, the three acts of it, where in the beginning... You're like, is this a movie about horse racing? There's a long opening Mm -hmm. scene of Humphrey Bogart and them talking about the horses and her on the horse and all of this stuff that really does not end up playing a huge role in the movie. And then there's this drastic change to when she's in the middle, super depressed and not caring if she lives or dies and all that. And then you have the bit where she decides like, no, I'm going to go live an idyllic life in Vermont and marry the doctor. And then there's this bit at the end where they're just pretending that nothing is wrong with her and everything's fine and then the tragic death but i was just sort of like the structure of it's bizarre another thing that i was fascinated by i'd never really seen a ronald reagan Mm -hmm. movie before and 
It was very interesting to see Ronald Reagan in this movie. As you mentioned, he, he sounds, sounds exactly, exactly like, like Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Reagan. Ronald Reagan always sounded just like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> exactly. And it's another thing where you're just like, it's weird to see him. Anytime he's on screen, I'm like, that man is Ronald yeah. Reagan. It just is distracting that he's there. I'll also say... I don't think I'd ever seen a movie with Betty Davis in it before. Yeah, I think this might be my first Betty Davis also. But I was kind of thrown by her performance. There's like not a lot of subtlety to Betty Davis. The first act where she's trying to pretend that she's not sick and all of that. I appreciate that we have called this a melodrama because she is dramatic. In the beginning of the movie, I I found I liked her a lot more in the drunk and depressed part. I feel like that really Mm -hmm. works for her. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty big performance. Also, just anything where people don't tell patients what's going on with them, I find. This is medical malpractice, right? What if she needs to update her will and leave all her stuff to her friend, Anne? Right. And I know HIPAA didn't exist, but the HIPAA violation is out the wazoo, (laughs) like telling the friend about it, but not the not the patient all of it is crazy and then dates her well yeah him dating her is fucked he should not as soon as he accepts the invitation after he's done the surgery to go to her house i was like no "No, get out of there go to vermont like you were supposed to (laughs) i don't understand what you're doing but then she's understandably upset when she finds out about it but the reason that she's upset mostly is she thinks that he was pretending to be in love with her like he feels bad for her because she's dying so he's agreed to marry her that's not what you should be upset about (laughs) i echo most of what you said my only other thought about this movie as i was watching it was her friend Anne is a lesbian right and in love with her i do think she's in love with her yeah i thought initially she was her sister so then to find out that she was her secretary slash best friend who lives (laughs) in the house with her sort of like what is this relationship she's definitely in love with her yeah so that was interesting i also loved there's this moment once they've moved to vermont and she's talking about how she didn't think that she would like it because she was so used to living in new york with all these people and all these things and she's like and here we don't have anything and i love it and as she's saying this she has two (laughs) servants in the kitchen her her maid (laughs) okay that's great Uh, what a wild one Dark Victory. That there is a movie I never in my life would have watched if we did not do this podcast. True for me as well. What a freaking wild movie that was. It did look nice to live in Vermont. I mean, Vermont looks lovely, especially with two maids in that garden. Come on. Yeah, if I could live in Vermont with two maids. (laughs) And your dogs in a garden out back. And you don't have to work because your husband is doing medical research. What a nice life. It sounds great. Okay, let's skip our next pairing. And move along to Wuthering Heights. So I'll do the recap. I'm very curious to hear your reaction to this film because prior to watching this, I started reading the book. And so my perception of it is a little influenced by that. So I kind of want to hear your fresh take. I have not read any of the book. So this adaptation of Wuthering Heights is the first half of the book. It is not the whole story. And it focuses on Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff. Heathcliff is the sort of like the adopted brother of Catherine. So the movie starts out, Catherine and her older brother are little kids. Their dad comes home from a journey and he's brought this boy with him. And he's like, he's your brother now. Yep. He found a boy on the street. He looked hard for his parents, but couldn't find any. So he just brought him home. 
And Heathcliff has a tumultuous relationship with the the older brother. They don't get along, but he and Catherine are thick as thieves. And over their childhood, they fall in love. But Catherine wants more than what they have. She wants to live a life of, of glamour and beautiful dresses. So she ends up marrying their neighbor and after some back and forth also with Heathcliff. And she can't decide if she loves him or she hates him and... If she loves her husband or if she wants to be with Heathcliff. And then Heathcliff ends up marrying the husband's sister as revenge. Yeah, as a real fuck you. And then Catherine dies and he's real sad. But then the two of them get to live forever as ghosts on the moors. So that's that's the adaptation that they've done of Wuthering Heights. What did you think about it? I can talk a little bit about how it lines up with the book and how it's different. But I I just I want to hear your fresh take. Obviously, I can only speak to the movie. I had I thought a lot about how different it would have been to a book because I found Catherine unbearable Uh in the movie. The relationship they have, you use tumultuous to describe it in our little, you know, description of the film. And that is a good description because this woman is freaking crazy. (laughs) It's all lying. I permit like the, the two of them, best friends growing up, falling in love as kids. They dream of a life together. And so she tells Heathcliff that he should leave Wuthering Heights, go make a fortune and then come back and rescue Mm -hmm. her. And so he at the time is like, I don't think I could leave you. I love you too much. Being separated would be too painful. And she's like, "Okay, I guess. And so then she ends up getting injured at the rich neighbor's house and has to stay there. So she has spent all this time at the rich guy's house, maybe falling in love with him, mostly just like falling in love with the idea of being a rich Mm -hmm. lady, I think. So she comes back and now she's dating the rich guy and Heathcliff is there like, why are you dating the rich guy? And she's like, I'm living my life. I'm going to go date the rich guy. She's like pretty upfront about it and seems confused why he's upset. And you're like, well, because aren't the two of you in love with each other? Wasn't that the whole thing? At one point, the rich guy proposes and there's the scene where she's talking to her maid about how she feels about all of this. And Heathcliff happens to be in the cupboard listening in. And so at first. Catherine's talking about how she thinks she should marry this rich guy. Maybe she's not in love with him, but it's probably worthwhile to do it, right? It seems like the right decision. And then she starts talking about Heathcliff. She's like, oh, Heathcliff, he's gotten so coarse that now he's in love with being rude and mean all of a sudden. And she starts shit talking him as he's there listening. And she says it would be an embarrassment to her to marry him. And so he hears her say all this bad stuff about him and then And then, of course, she starts talking about how even though she said all that, they are in love. And there's this famous line from it where she says, whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And so she's talking about how the two of them seemingly should should be together, though that isn't really her takeaway. (laughs) But then she finds out that he had heard her. At this point, he actually has left. So he's gone. She does end up marrying the rich guy. And then finally, Heathcliff returns, having made his fortune, as she told him to do. And she's really pissed that he's back. And he's like, didn't you tell me to leave and get a fortune? And then we could be together. <laughs> and she's like, I don't understand why you're doing this, Heathcliff. Can't you see I'm married now? And so he's pissed, but he's rich now. And when you're rich, you get to do what you want. So he buys Wuthering Heights because the brother is a drunken gambler who's lost all his money now. He also, this is the worst thing I think he does. He marries the sister who does love him and he should not because he clearly does not love the sister and he like leads her on and he does it just to piss off Catherine which is a fucked up thing to do but of course Catherine is really upset about it even though what does she have to be upset about she's married to the rich (laughs) and so then there's just so many scenes of her being mad at him 
all the time. And I feel like she's the one making the decisions that are not good for them. And so you're like, well, you're the one who've gotten yourself into this situation. And so then the scene where she's going to die and then he comes and they have their final farewell and it's like okay i guess they still love each other and then they in the structure of the film this is all being like Mm -hmm. told from the future to a guy who's visited the house and wondered why Heathcliff is so weird (laughs) so they're like telling the story of their romance and then they hear Catherine's ghost basically out on the moors Heathcliff runs out dies out there the two of them are going to be happy together i would be happier about the ending if it were the type of tragic romance where i got why they couldn't be Mm. together You know, like if it was a thing where it just was not going to work out for them in life, but now it's nice that they get to be together in death. And if it were a situation where like the girl is poor and this is the past and the only thing she can fucking do is marry a rich guy, right? They would be destitute if she married Heathcliff. And, you know, we've all read Jane Austen, but I feel like it never plays like that. She wants to marry the rich guy because she's weighing her options and she's always like, but I really do want to have nice things (laughs) and like have this comfortable life and it just plays like does she really care about Heathcliff hard to say if she really loved him maybe it would be like we should both run away together to America and figure it out together or something like that never plays into it it's just like he's waiting around and she's uh, doesn't understand why he's upset she married a rich guy (laughs) and so then I leave the film thinking like all right nice that they're together in death I guess but also like I feel kind of bad for the rich guy because it's clear when she dies that she never loved him. And I feel bad for Heathcliff's wife because she didn't deserve any of this. And so you're like, well, all right. That's Withering Heights. I'm intrigued for you to tell me more about the book because I know that there's stuff with their kids. I read like two sentences about this on a Wikipedia page that is nowhere in the movie. So what's the second half of the book? So yeah, I was very curious to hear from your perspective whether or not the relationship works in the movie because I I got so bogged down in the weeds of like how different the book is from the movie that I couldn't even track like is this work I'm just like everything is different so I'm really enjoying the book like I said I haven't finished it yet it is so dark the level of abuse in Mm -hmm. the book that's occurring is so intense and I find it particularly interesting for a book that's written that long ago how just grotesque mm-hmm. all the characters are. Because Heathcliff is worse in the novel, and so is Catherine. Like, if you can imagine it. Yeah. And it's interesting that they took what's... The book, I think, is really about how cycles of abuse perpetuate through a family. Because the father is much more abusive to his kids. And when he brings Heathcliff into the home, he makes Heathcliff his favorite. So the son feels very, very rejected. Because all of a sudden, this new kid has shown up, and he's the favorite, right? Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because in the book, that horse scene is reversed. It's Heathcliff's horse who is lame. And he goes up to the biological son and says, my horse is lame. I want your horse. And the biological son is like, mm. no. And he's like, but it's my and horse. Heathcliff tells him, well, if you don't give me your horse, I'm going to tell dad about all the beatings you've given me. And he's going to beat you three times more and give you my, your horse anyway. So you might as well give me your horse. And that's when he throws the rock at Heathcliff, Jesus. right? And then the older son is sent away and he's away when the dad dies. And then he comes back and he's has a wife and he's kind of okay. But the wife dies in childbirth and he just loses it. He becomes a raging alcoholic, yeah. very abusive, very abusive to his child. There's this absolutely shocking scene in the book where the maid who's telling the story, she's taking care of the child. And whenever the dad comes home, she hides him in a cupboard because he will just beat this kid. 
And one time she doesn't hide the kid quickly enough. And the dad's like, give me that kid. And he tries to hug it. But the kid knows the dad is abusive. So he's fighting him. And he like picks him up by the scruff of his neck and drops him off the top of the stairs. And it's by chance. And it's by chance that Heathcliff is walking by and catches him like he was about to kill his son. Everyone has like complex PTSD. And so like they have no control over their emotions, really. Right. And they're lashing out and they're perpetuating this ongoing abuse to these innocent bystanders who are now the Lintons, who are their neighbors, who they're marrying into. And it's just, it's a fascinating book, right? <laughs> and yeah. and so just as an example of how terrible Catherine and Heathcliff are, Catherine is mocking Isabella for being in love with Heathcliff and then reveals it in front of mm-hmm. him to make fun of her, right? Oh, and then she's Jesus. crying and she leaves the room and they have this conversation and Heathcliff is like, oh yeah, you know, if I dated her, I'd punch her in the face every day. And Catherine just laughs. They're like laughing about it. They're terrible they're, people. They're monsters. Both of them are monsters. So yeah, it's it's very interesting, again, to see this movie, which takes that and turns it into this grand, epic, tragic romance. Because then I think that's how this story is largely remembered by a lot of people. And like Heathcliff yeah. is this, this tragic, Byronic hero. But like, no, they're, everyone's a monster except for maybe He's the lynchings. He's actually awful. They're all terrible. The Lintons are just hapless victims. (laughs) And so, yeah, it was I couldn't process the movie as its own thing. And I don't necessarily think that like we had this conversation with The Shining, that just because a movie is not a faithful adaptation of the book should not necessarily reflect on how good the movie is. Like the movie can be a separate thing, but it was distracting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and as someone who hasn't read the book. I didn't find the movie to be super successful, even aside from how faithful of an adaptation it was. I guess the, what you're describing of the novel doesn't sound super commercial to me. Not something that Hollywood would snap up as a successful story. And then also, right, again, I was shocked reading it, just how stark the abuse is in this novel from like the early 19th century. I don't know how under the, like, what could you show under the Hayes Code to indicate that this was happening? Yeah, I don't know if you could show people like beating their children. Dropping them off of the code. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because it feels like a lot of that explains things that happen in the movie. And and without the explanation, you're left just being like, these people all act very strange. (laughs) Yeah. Part of the reason she marries the rich guy is also she just wants to get out of her household because it's a, a nightmare. Yeah. Whereas I think in the movie, her older brother's just kind of drunk. I mean, her brother's a real dick to Heathcliff, but he's rude to Kathy, but it doesn't feel like she's in like an unsafe situation or something. Okay. Well, I guess it's time. We have to have our... Nanachka Gone with the Wind discussion. There is such a thing. This is an interesting one. You have a lot to say about Gone with the Wind, but I don't... How are we going to decide this before we get into the discussions of them? Okay. Let's make a basic pitch for both of these movies. You tell me why you chose Nanachka. Yeah. I'll tell you briefly what I was thinking with choosing God with the Wind without Gamma. diving fully into my 12-point structured yeah. thoughts about God with the Wind. Sure, because we're going to get to that either right now or next time. Okay, so I guess my decision doesn't entirely rest on Nanachka's merits. Obviously, sure. it has to do with God with the Winds as well. I did very much enjoy Nanachka. I mean, just as a picture i had a lot more fun watching Mm -hmm. it it's a satire there's lightness there's jokes there's also a lot of like very interesting biting 
dialogue about the Soviet Union, which I was fascinated by because what people were thinking about that at the time is intriguing. And this movie sort of seemingly kind of invented the film trope of how we presented Soviets for a long Mm -hmm. time. The sort of robotic, unfeeling people with these very, you know, the 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 way we think about communists. You get it. Where it's like, there's a way things are done. We're bureaucrats. This is how we make our decisions. No fun, no feelings, a lot of that. And that sort of comes from Greta Garbo's character in this. There were things about it that I didn't think were so successful, but I I think that's true of most Mm -hmm. of these. Like any sort of romance movie, I feel like a lot of the time, if you're not getting really deep into the character, like they're, they're kind of in love immediately in a way that, you know, I'm usually like, well, how did yeah. that happen? But I just found this stuff when they go back to the Soviet Union was really fascinating. And I loved the three guys, just that funny version of these Soviet bureaucrats who get a taste of the good life and are sort of like, well, you know, <laughs> how much do we really like the Soviet Union anyway? I just I was charmed by a lot of it. I really liked the writing. And I don't think I'd seen Greta Garbo in anything, but I really liked her. And I know she hadn't done comedy, which was interesting. And that paired with, though I do find it to be culturally significant, Gone with the Wind had various issues that I just, you know, don't prefer it to Nanachka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but give me your, your pitch. I liked Nanachka as well, but... It didn't blow me away. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's the type of movie that I would watch and then I would just go, oh, that was nice. And I wouldn't think about it too in depth. I, I thought long and hard about this one and Gone with the Wind in particular. I have a lot of problems with Gone with the Wind. I can't say that I enjoy it. There are parts of this movie mm-hmm. that make me feel physically nauseous as I'm watching it, right? Yeah. But I also, as I was thinking about it and this project so far found that I feel quite similarly about it in a lot of ways to Raging Bull. And I put Raging Bull through Mm -hmm. on the strength of its filmmaking, the critical consensus around it and its cultural significance. And I have a Mm -hmm. hard time not making the same argument with Gone with the Wind. The filmmaking is very impressive. The costumes are amazing. The scope of it is in some ways a detriment, but it's impressive, right? Like, The special effects are at times amazing, extraordinary what they've been able to do. Mm -hmm. The set design, incredible. Can't fault the craftspeople on this picture. And I think it just has a lot of the same problems, really, that I had with Raging Bull. And so, like, I would feel personally hypocritical saying yes to Raging Bull, no to Gone with the Wind. And it's interesting because they're both in very similar slots on the AFI Top 100 list. Raging Bull is now four and Gone with the Wind is... It's high up there. It's not in the top five anymore. Okay. So like they're they're in very similar yeah. spaces. It's it's not like a happy, enthusiastic, like, oh, of course, gone with the wind. But I think just in the way that I've been thinking about these films, I feel weird about being like, yeah, I guess for Raging Bull and no for this one. I definitely considered a lot of those things, of course. I do agree that there is a lot of the filmmaking of Gone with the Wind that is great and obviously it's super ambitious they were doing things at the time that nobody else was doing we've talked on our own about specific scenes that we really liked when we watched it and like the burning of atlanta is spectacular Mm -hmm. even now (laughs) and stuff that they've done is incredible i find though that leaving aside the social aspects of this that i think we both agree on 
There are artistic aspects of it that I just really don't like, though. The fact that it is two hours too long really bothers me. <laughs> like, I find it's a slog of a film. They needed to edit. It's so overly faithful to the book. There's no sense that they have tried to make this cohesive <laughs> piece of art. I feel like they just took a thing and page for page made that thing into a movie, which I don't think works. And so just the long stretches of it that I find really boring are a problem for me. And that paired with the fact that I feel like it's actively bad for the world that it exists. It was an issue for me. I don't know. I mean, you're right. It depends on how much we're going to wait, how it like capital I important the Mm -hmm. film is to cinema, because there are parts of this that deserve to be remembered and parts of it that have had a huge effect on filmmaking going forward. So I don't know. I just really struggled to vote for it. I mean, I did, too, to be honest. Like, yeah, I think I, you know, this gets down to the way we approach this, too. Right. If this had been up against, I think, a stronger seed, it would have been easier for me to say no to. Like if this had been up against Mr. Smith goes to Washington. No problems. No problems there. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... As I said at the beginning, I strongly prefer Ninochka, mm-hmm. obviously, but I don't know that I want to fight you to the death for this because it's not like I can argue that it's not important. Right. Gone with the Wind is clearly important, but I actively dislike most of it. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how we wait the craftsmanship of it. And then I also write, this is part of the conversation we had with Raging Bull, I don't know how we wait the content and its impact on the world. I don't want to get too much into like my feelings of this related to Raging Bull because I want to do that within the conversation of the movie. But like, yeah, do you take a piece of art as itself and not worry so much about what exists outside of it in your evaluation? Or do you Mm -hmm. have to look at the reverberations of it throughout time? And we have a lot more time now. I think it is obviously important to consider a film within its context and the repercussions of the film. My issue with it is artistically, Raging Bull has its many issues, but I feel like I it works more for me as a piece of art than Gone with the Wind. And does. I don't feel that it does. So like that's, I think that's the space between us. I think if I had said no to Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, I'd feel way better about saying no to Gone with the Wind for a consistency sake. Sure. I don't know. This is where we are like, where do we draw the line here on making a decision? Because... It's not like I'm arguing that Nanachka should have won Best Picture. I'm not ready to die on the sword. It has to go through to the next round. So if you want to save Gone with the Wind, I will let you save Gone with the Wind. Really don't. I really, really don't. But I don't know that I can say in good faith either that I think Nanachka is more deserving of Best Picture. Well, all right, I'll take the responsibility. (laughs) Okay, this is all on you, friend. (laughs) We'll talk about Gone with the Wind next episode. Do you want to talk a little bit more about Ninochka? Sure. So the synopsis of Ninochka is we're in Paris. There is this some sort of kind of royal somehow. He has a title. Oh, Lord something. But there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a rich guy who doesn't have a job type of guy who is like swanning around with various other wealthy ladies. The time when people who were royals in Russia have since left Russia post-revolution. So there is this 
is she a countess or a duchess or something? There's a Russian lady who is here in Paris who's been seeing this guy. She has this set of jewels that she had to leave in Russia because they were taken from her by the Soviets. We find out that these three sort of hapless, bumbling Soviet attache folks are in Paris with the jewels trying to sell them because the Soviets are having money issues. Um, And so they're selling off all of these assets that they have. So they find out that the jewels are in Paris to be sold. And our main guy talks his way into a situation where he tells these guys he's going to make legal trouble for them because he knows the woman who owns the jewels. And these guys are totally in over their head. So it's clear in Russia that things are not going well on this mission. So they send Nanachka into Paris to handle the situation. She's much more no-nonsense Soviet woman. She comes to town to figure out what's taking so long. Why haven't we sold these jewels? And while she is out, she happens to run into our main guy, but he does not know who she is. And he finds her, you know, very pretty and interesting. So he takes her to the Eiffel Tower to show her around. He doesn't take her to the Eiffel Tower. He follows her to the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yeah, you're right. She asks where the Eiffel Tower is, and he points her in the direction of the Eiffel Tower. And then, yeah, he kind of, like, runs into her. (laughs) He comes with a book that has all the factoids she's looking for. So it's kind of sweet. That's true. So they have this night. They're intrigued by each other. She somehow ends up going back with him to his place. And they, do they kiss? They kiss. But then he finds out that she is the person who's been sent by Russia to wrap up this jewel thing. He's like, well, who cares? She's like, this is a huge conflict of interest. I cannot be around you anymore. And so then, you know, they set to the business of trying to negotiate the deal with these jewels. Meanwhile, he's still trying to woo her. So he keeps like showing up places that she is and trying to win her over and like telling her jokes. But there's this idea that Soviets are not interested in jokes. <laughs> so he keeps telling her all of these jokes until finally Garbo laughs as it tells you on the poster. It's not a joke, though. It's a pratfall. He like falls over and knocks a table yes. over. So it's a bit of physical comedy that she enjoys. Physical comedy works for everyone. It's the great unifier. So now that she has this connection to him, there's like a crack in her Soviet armor and she starts to think maybe all of this western stuff isn't so terrible and i could be interested in knowing these people and then finally the woman who owns the jewels finds out and she gets one over on nanachka by taking the jewels when nanachka is sleeping off a hangover telling her she will give her the jewels back if nanachka will just leave paris and never see the guy again which Even though she loves the guy, her duty is to the Soviet Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she she gets the jewels back, makes the deal, gets on the plane, goes back to Russia. And then there's this fascinating period of the film where you're just in the Soviet Union. And it's just this interesting, like, behind-the-scenes peek at what people in 1939 thought was going on (laughs) in the Soviet Union. And so then she has put her mind to, like, this is just my life now. I'm just going to forget about this guy. And then her three pals we find out, have been sent on a different mission to, like, Morocco? Uh, uh, Constantinople. It's Istanbul. They're in Turkey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in Constantinople on some other mission, and for some reason it's taking them forever to get this mission done, and they can't figure out why it's taking so long, so they're going to send a Nashka in after them. She has to go. She goes out there. They're living it up, having a great time. And so they want to start this restaurant, and then she's like, guys, I can't cover for you again. This is crazy. But then it turns out this whole thing has been like sort of organized by our Parisian friend who shows up there 
and, you know, Holland's yeah. in a lovely manner. You know, They're aw, in love again. That's and, so nice. But what I found most interesting about it was there were a lot of interesting things said about Russia. And some of them were just funny mm-hmm. bits. Like when he meets her, he finds out she's Russian and he's like, oh, I love Russians. Comrade, I've been fascinated by your five-year plan for the last 15 years. That was a good joke. <laughs> Which is delightful. But then there are parts where like the scene when the Duchess meets Nanachka, like it gets fucking dark yes. in their conversation because she's talking about like Nanachka would have been a lower class under this woman's duchessness. And so they they start talking about the Cossacks and like Nanachka's wearing this very lovely dress and the woman is like that's not the type of dress you would have worn back in the day in russia and she's like well no because i wouldn't have worn a shoulder bearing dress because of the whip marks from the cossacks and then the duchess is like yes you're quite right about the cossacks we made a great mistake when we let them use their whips they had such reliable guns and you're like jesus christ this shit is dark as much as it's obviously a send-up of the soviet union it's not like it's just soviet union bad throughout the movie does allow you to understand like oh why did they make these choices what led to this yeah i loved that probably the most villainous person in it is not the soviets it is this royal russian woman who's living in exile in paris well she's also keeping our lovebirds apart horrible yeah because she's the villain of Mm -hmm. the piece and then another bit i had to write down because i just loved it so much there's this part where leon who's our guy starts talking about communism and how all the poor people in Paris are must be thinking about it and he starts talking to his butler and he's like you can't tell me that you don't look forward to the day when you can come in here stand on your two feet and say from now on it's share and share alike and the butler says emphatically not sir the prospect terrifies me no don't misunderstand me sir I don't resent you're not paying me for the past two months but the thought that I should split my bank account with you and that you should take half my life savings that is really too much for me sir and so it's this great turn of like, you think first they're saying, no, poor people love being poor and they like to be butlers. And really the guys, you're like, irresponsible. No, you are, you're incredibly irresponsible, which yeah. is true. He's spending his money on God knows what. I also liked the little beat when Nanachka accidentally gets drunk on champagne and then goes into the bathroom and she's trying to unionize all the women. Right. In the and bathroom. they try to send Leon in and he's like, I'm going to need more whiskey. <laughs> so that's Nanachka. Yeah. It's a fun little satire. Billy Wilder is one of the writers people will know from other things. And it is interesting that this was Greta Garbo's second to last film. I did not realize her first mm-hmm. comedy. Then she did one more comedy that was such a failure. She stopped acting. She never worked again. <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. No, I like this movie. I, you know, we'll we'll get into Ugh, the winner. Next episode. <laughs> I think our conversation about the winner is going to be almost exclusively <laughs> negative, but it, it'll. I'm glad we're saving it because there's, there's so much a lot to, to talk say. about. But this movie is fun. I think I wanted it to be a little bit funnier than it was, but I, I enjoyed it. Sure. And there, the bits you all mentioned were, were very funny. And I agree with you. You're like, I guess they're in love now, but I liked them. I thought they had good chemistry. And when he showed back up at the end, I was like, I was like, oh, this is nice. Because the thing is, yeah. he he does immediately go after. He tries to get back to her, but they won't let him into the Soviet Union. Well, because they're like, what business do you have there? And he's like, I'm in love with a woman and I have to win her back. And the guy's yeah. like, deny. And so he like punches <laughs> the, the immigration guy. And at the end of the film, he tells her, you know, I couldn't keep 
punching every immigration officer throughout Europe. So I had to contrive some way to get you out of Russia. And so he set it up with yeah. the, the three Russian guys to figure out how to get her out so they could be together. It's very cute. Yeah, it's nice. And I love the three yeah, Russian they're guys. Fun. They're delightful and they all play off each other hilariously. I did also think that the opening scene of this movie was quite funny, where you start off in this grand hotel and you see this guy come in through the revolving door and he looks around and the hotel clerk is like, can I help you? And he's like, no, I'm fine. And he revolves out. And then the next Russian guy revolves in and he's like looking around and he's like, can I help you? No, next Russian guy revolves in. It was was quite good. Yeah, they're just really fun. Those guys were maybe my favorite thing about the movie. I thought that they were delightful. And I always love a satire. We need more comedy in these Best Picture nominations because there's never yeah, enough of it. That's for sure. All right. Those are our losers. We want to we declare our best of the worst and a worst of the worst. What's your yes. best of the worst? Well, I mean, I feel like I have to say Nanachka is my best of the worst. I wanted it to be in the that's winners. I also it. feel like Nanachka is my best of the worst. I think it's an enjoyable mm-hmm. little movie. So what's your worst of the worst? Um, I think it has to be... Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I think the fictional biopic was just so mind-blowing. And I think of all the films, I think I found it the most boring to watch. My worst of the worst is Wuthering Heights. (laughs) I, I could not understand why anyone was doing anything they were doing. She seemed completely crazy. Part of that is, obviously, I'd heard of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. But I think I expected more from Wuthering Heights just because it's a it's a big part of. Well, probably because you've heard people talk about the book, which I'm telling you, it's exactly. Intense. Well, it's like you've talked. I've heard people talk about Heathcliff uh-huh. and what a like you know. But but I really feel like people are talking about movie. I think version so too. Of Maybe not this movie version, but a movie version of Heathcliff because people talk about him like this you know wonderful tragic yeah. hero type of character and it sounds like that is not the Again, I haven't finished it yet but that's not what I'm getting from the book I think this movie really has influenced perception of this book yeah all right best of the worst and the worst of the worst I'm fascinated I'm fascinated for our next episode people but before we get to the end of this episode mm-hmm. we cannot forget to take a little visit to Jake Gyllenhaal Yes, we've Corner. now named this segment. That's what we're calling it Jake now. Gyllenhaal Corner. So typically what we do is if Jake Gyllenhaal is acting, we talk about if there's a performance or film of his that should have been nominated. If he is not yet alive, as is the case here, we talk about if there's a role in one of these pictures that we think he would have been good at. Do you have an idea for a Jake Gyllenhaal role here? Yeah. You know, this is interesting because we usually think about it beforehand, but it's a little hard to do because we didn't quite know what was going to fall into the winners and the losers. I think he'd be cute in the Leon role. I think it could handle the the comedy of it. Yeah. Nanashko is where I was leaning to because I just, I like like a charming, fun yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. He does dark a lot and he's good at it, but could see him. He would be Leon. I I like. I would watch him as one of the guys too. Like I could see him as one of the Russians, like one of the you know little bumbling fun yeah. Russian guys. <laughs> but I would like him in Nanashka. I just feel like that's a good a good vibe mm-hmm. for him. I mean, there are lots of fairly boring normal male leads he could play. He could be the Doctor in Dark Victory. Why, he could why be, waste a Jake Gyllenhaal know. on the Doctor in Dark? I Victory? I mean, he could be Mr. Chips, obviously, but. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why? Let's let's put him yeah. in Nanachka. I want to see him as Parisian Lord 
Leon, what yes, should we call yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's do a, a half conclusion because I don't think we want to get to what we think should have no. won yet. But I do want us to come to some final thoughts about these five movies that we have discussed. Do you see yourself coming back to rewatch any of them? I don't know that I actively will. This doesn't happen anymore. But Nanachka is definitely is of the level like if I saw it on TV, I'd be like, okay. Yeah. I feel similarly. And you're right. I always think like, well, if it was on, but then I'm like, how often am I watching something that's right. on anymore? <laughs> if I'm somewhere um, with cable and TCM is showing it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, probably not any of the others. Hopefully I'll be saying yes to a lot more of them in next week's episode of The yes. Is there anything we feel like we've learned? I feel like this is a conversation that we'll carry to the next because this Nanashka Gone with the Wind conversation is definitely speaking to what we think make sub S picture. Have we learned any lessons since? I just I again, and we had this conversation a little bit, I think, too, with the the nineteen eighty nine year. My overwhelming feeling with the losers of if not for this podcast, these are all movies that if I if I happened to watch them, I think a lot of these I never would have watched. But if I happened to watch them, I would have gone, okay. (laughs) Just it was fine. (laughs) I guess that was a movie. Yeah. I feel like the conversation is going to mostly be about Gone with the Wind for this. Yeah. That that will be what we have learned if we learn anything here. We are in a different place. One of our patterns we've been tracking is angry white guys. And I feel like the the prototypical angry white guy of your taxi drivers and your raging bulls kind of didn't exist yet. This is a very different, different world of white guys. I mean, Heathcliff is pretty angry, but. Not as angry in the movie as he apparently is in the book. There's so much abuse in that household. It's crazy. Like, you, you, like. Everyone's terrible, but you also feel badly for them because yikes. Yeah. It's interesting that the dad is evil and abusive because in the movie, the dad seems. Yeah, that is very it, it's there's some physical, but it's largely emotional because, again, like to be someone's child and they just show up with another kid. And he's like, this kid's my favorite now. Yeah, <laughs> I've picked a better kid than you guys. Ah. That's fucked up. OK, so I think that about does it. We've been talking for quite a while about these things. Seemingly enough time has passed. And next week, well, yeah. next time, you'll be hearing even more about it. You'll be hearing about the winners of 1939. So the five pictures that we did not discuss this time, which are, to recap, Stagecoach of Mice and Men, The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So come back for our thoughts about those. And we will be finally telling you, as we are not telling you today, whether or not the Oscars Mm -hmm. got it wrong. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, please reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 